Welcome to Sanctimonious, a podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss a new Keyforge topic every week. These topics will range from how to improve at the game to building community and everything in between. I'm Jake and joined as always by my co-host Dan. Dan, how's it going? Hey man, how's it going? It's going well over here in the Pacific Northwest. Enjoyed some sunshine. Now back to the rain to really even things out. Let's go. Always back to the rain over there as I understand it. We just, we tell people that, so no, not as many people come out here. It's not working, though. This place is blowing up. It's, it's been raining here, like, in St. Louis, just nonstop for weeks. So I've had four kickball games canceled. It's not good. Man. <laughs> oh, man, not the kickball <laughs> games. All right. Well, as always on Sanctimonious Podcast, we are a podcast about Keyforge, where we get started with a weekly inspiration, where we each sort of say one thing that has inspired us Keyforge related throughout the week. Do you want to go first this time? Sure, I suppose I'll go first. So my inspiration of the week is our Sanctimonious Discord. Um, this Discord that we started and the people that have been in it and the community have just been amazing. Like. Seriously, it's really hard to put into words. Like everybody's really cool, everybody's really chill. We've got a lot of really strong players. People are always posting up to find games. People are joining those games. Um, for the most part, we always set the spectators to seeing both hands too. So if you don't, if you're not actually playing in the game, you can just pop in and watch them play it and kind of learn a lot just from seeing the plays they make. I don't know. It's been an amazing community, and like that's just elevated my, you know, my passion for the game because I. We've got all these nice like-minded people that are talking about it constantly all day and sharing deck lists and yeah, it's been great. So if you're not a part of our discord yet, please join. Like we don't, there's no, there's no paywall. There's no Patreon that uh, will keep you out. You just uh, click the link in the show notes there and join the, join the, join the conversation, join the games, join the revelry, join the, uh, you know, jabs at each other, the fun jabs, not mean jabs, just fun jabs. Yeah, come hang out. It's been a really, really cool community, and I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, there's my big squishy heart just out there for all of you to see. Yeah, you are so right about the quality of players. I, I finally got back to streaming a little bit last night and played against uh, some people, just set up the games through the Discord, and just promptly went 0-4. <laughs> <And so, laughs> yeah. So I got a taste of your medicine a little bit, what you were talking about in the previous week. Yeah, there's there's some good players in there. Like, But that's how we improve. No, definitely. Definitely. That's how you improve is you play better players and you just you really have to focus in on your game. And I've, I feel like I've drastically improved in like the last two weeks since we've had that group up because just the quality of opponent that I'm going against is so much higher than just the random matchmaking. Well, not guess it is random matchmaking i don't know whatever whatever it is (laughs) um you know just the quality of opponent's so much higher that you kind of have to make all the right plays and all the right reads to give yourself that shot you just improve so much faster that way well this is not uh we did not coordinate on this at all but my weekly inspiration also came uh within the discord and i wanted to highlight a really insightful comment that was made in there uh by uh, our a, a user Beehawk, I guess that's his screen name in there. And what he said is, I have a tendency to make my opponent have a card rather than play conservatively. 
but as the game progresses, the likelihood that they have the card in question increases where conservative play matters. I like to call it a pivot point. I'm racing until I recognize the point where I need to pivot into conservative. When I read that, it really clicked with me um, because that's something I think I've been starting to intuitively understand just playing game after game of Keyforge, uh, but wasn't ever really to put it into words as well as Beehawk did and thinking about the pivot point because he's so right as you play a game and you get into sort of a two key versus two key situation the fundamental rules that got you there may ultimately lead to your downfall uh if you don't change the way you're thinking just knowing there's only a card or two left in their deck if they don't already have if you haven't already seen x y and z then that means it's likely in their archive in their hand and you really have to be strategic about playing around those cards in a way that it's probably not optimal to do earlier in the game. Let me put this into an actual Keyforge example. So let's say it's like turn three, you have the chance to get yourself up to like, say, eight Amber, but you know your opponent's deck has bait and switch, and they're only sitting at two Amber. So the pivot point, before the pivot point, you're probably going to race to that eight and just make them have the bait and switch. Like if they have it, they have it. But after the pivot point, so after you, so if you're at the, end of the game now and they've drawn most of their deck and you haven't seen bait and switch yet then you can just you you know it's in their hand and so at that point that's when the conservative play is going to come in so you're going to take the play where you know if they do which they probably do have it maybe go to six because six and two is eight and uh bait and switch is half of that so you'd go four and four whereas if you went to eight it would be five five which you know you're giving him an additional amber if yeah, I mean, I think that really illustrates the point. It's giving me a new framework to think about as I play games. So I just wanted to pass that on to all of you, dear listeners, for my weekly inspiration. And thank you, Beehawk, Lord of the Arise decks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, with the inspiration out of the way, uh, let's move on to the main topic. So today's main topic, we're going to be talking about mistakes we see newer players, not as experienced players, making when we're either playing in crucible matches or when you're teaching somebody to play, you see a lot of these kind of these things. And I mean, I'm sure me and Jake are still guilty of a lot of these things too. I know I am. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I've got examples. <laughs> <laughs> and like when you're trying out a new deck too, sometimes you just make mistakes because you don't see the line of play that the deck is leading you on. And then all of a sudden, like a turn later, like, Oh, yeah, that's what I was supposed to do. Before we dive in, the way we've formatted this is if you're a really experienced player listening to this, I don't want you to think that there's nothing here for you. Uh, so we're starting off with uh, rudimentary mistakes we see for brand new players, and then we're going to kind of ramp up in intensity. So I think even if you're an experienced player, there's there's going to be some content here for you as well. All right, so starting off with our first kind of basic here, we've got don't clear out the tech value creatures immediately, a.k.a. kill the witch. <laughs> um, no, we just see it a lot. A lot of times when you're playing like newer players, they don't realize the full power level of certain cards, say like Hunting Witch or Witch of the Eye. Like, I mean, it's pretty apparent, but sometimes you'll see a newer player swing at the troll or something like that, some big creature thinking 
like the bigger creature is like the more powerful creature and that's the one they need to get rid of i mean usually like the creatures you want to kill are the two and three power guys those guys are the ones that have the big abilities it's a super easy mistake to make especially coming from any other game where power is much more equivalent to impact on the game Uh, but in keyforge fighting is actually one of the lowest impact things you can do so uh, when you first start playing you see troll has eight power you're like wow i have to you know deal with that because surely it's going to be a really big deal when in reality uh much more often than not as dan was saying it's the smaller guys to deal with yeah just some some example are you know the witch of the eye hunting witch john smith mind warper mother succubus ember imp mermook um yeah and i guess you can throw grabber jammer on there too like not super techie but another card that can just kind of ruin your day if you leave it unchecked these will be reap abilities action abilities some fight abilities some fight abilities i mean there's the two power like umbra from uh shadow's house that's a skirmish to steal one like fight ability so yeah just a bunch of tech creatures that have an ability while if they get to um, actually be used the following turn after they come in and then also passive abilities where it's just hurting you by sitting out there every single turn it's out there yes and those are the ones like mother where they're drawing extra cards or succubus where it's forcing you to draw fewer cards yep and we'll try to be better too we've heard some feedback that <laughs> we come at this from such a addict uh, mindset that sometimes we just throw card names out and don't actually explain them so we'll try to do better so yeah and the final thing on this point is often you'll be faced with a question where you know you could kill the card now but it's going to be slightly less efficient so for example if they play a witch of the eye and you have a punch in your hand which is a brobnar card that gives you an amber and deals three damage but that's maybe your only brobnar card so it's very inefficient to play that now so you think to yourself i'll just come back and do it later i think that's really reasonable play and sometimes depending on the circumstances but in general i think we advocate just getting rid of those high impact cards whenever you have the opportunity because you never know Uh, Your opponent could be dropping a Scrambler Storm next turn to prevent you from playing any action or a Shadow Self next to it uh, or any variety of other things to sort of stop your plans. And now you're in a really bad situation. So moving on. So holding cards in hand instead of discarding them. So you've got your cards like Miasma, Bait and Switch, um, uh, burn the stockpile, effervescent principle, interdimensional graph, those kinds of cards. Okay. Bait and switch allows you to steal one until you're even with your opponent. Miasma allows you to prevent your opponent from forging. Burn the stockpiles, Brobnar, where it, uh, if your opponent has seven or more, they lose four. And effervescent halves both of your amber piles. Like these kinds of cards are situationally really good. But if you're going to hold it for three turns, all of a sudden you've just chained yourself for three turns while you're holding that card. And in that case, you're better off just getting rid of it and drawing drawing more cards. Yeah, and I think a really important thing to note here for new players is if you play all your shadow cards but one because you want to keep your miasma until it's going to be more useful, thinking, okay, well, I'll use this in another turn or two. Because of the way you'll be drawing new cards into your hand that are likely going to not be shadow cards since you just played out a bunch of them. It really might be several turns before it makes sense to call shadows again. So 
you kind of think of, I'll just save this for one turn in your head, when in reality, that often turns into two or three or more turns. And then you look back on the game and realize you've just been playing with five cards in your hand instead of six for far too long. We've kind of started referring to that as self-chaining yourself. Because, I mean, you haven't played the card, but you are reducing your draw. Most of the time, you're better off. If it's not good this turn, and if you are not, if you know you're not going to call that house the next turn, like, you just need to get rid of it. Again, I'll put another caveat on this. This is, like, before the pivot point, probably. Kind of the early game. Right. Late game, stuff like Miasma. If you're on two keys, they're on two keys. Then, yeah, you're going to self-chain yourself. <laughs> also, be aware whenever you tell yourself, I'm definitely playing this house again next time that might look very differently after your opponent goes. So you think, okay, well, I just played all these creatures. I'm going to use them next time. So it'll be fine to save this action. But then your opponent clears out your entire board with a gateway to disc that just says destroy all creatures. And now you really don't want to call that house. And yet you're stuck with this card in your hand. For new players, especially being aware that there's always an inherent risk to that line of play is important. Definitely. For more intermediate players, which I would sort of consider myself in that group, uh, and I think most people are, we're all still learning this game, is I can find myself getting in the habit of doing the opposite, which means I'm always inclined to play as efficiently as possible. And that's a good way to sort of blow right past that pivot point and you know, use that miasma one turn before it could have won you the game. What Jake means by playing efficiently is he means, so say you had like three untamed creatures on the board, but you have four Logos cards in hand. Playing efficiently would be to play all four of the Logos cards out of hand to draw more cards. But sometimes you're more advantageous using your three creatures on board and your one untamed card in hand. Yeah, you're not going to draw as many cards back up but the impact could be greater. So say you're at three amber and the untamed play gets you to six amber, plus you get to play another creature out, then you're in check. And then you've got yourself set up for probably a big logos turn the next turn. Like it feels a little inefficient since you're only drawing one card, but you've put more pressure on your opponent by making that play and not just immediately going, well, I've got four logos cards, so I'm going logos this turn. Yeah, so let's jump right to our next point, which is not using a strong established board and instead uh, playing out more cards to the board, which I think uh, the point you just made, Dan, leads right sure. into. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll borrow Bouncing Death Quarks. They're Amber Delta. I like their Amber Delta. It pretty much is how they evaluate the cards in hand with the Amber that's on those cards with the cards on board. Um, so the creatures they have on board that can reap and gain amber. So say you have two creatures on board, your board delta is two amber for those creatures. And then if you have three cards in hand, which one of them would gain you an amber and one would steal an amber, your delta for that turn is four amber, which is kind of what, um, I think that was kind of what they're aiming for is about four amber deltas. So you're getting four amber a turn. You're, you know, efficiently getting towards the, uh, end of the game there. If you can get four amber per turn. Similarly to the pivot point that we alluded to later in the game, uh, there's another point to identify, which is I've already built up enough of a presence on the board. I need to start using it before it's gone. Because if you just keep playing creatures to the board, you may never have the chance to use the ones that you've played out over the previous turns. And then what was it all for? Yeah. You're just setting yourself up for a big gateway to diss or a coward's end that just kind of 
levels the playing field really quickly and then you don't have anything in hand to kind of rebuild that board you've already played it all out so as a general rule uh whether you think about delta or you think about something else if you can reap for four with the board or, or do something otherwise very impactful definitely give a strong consideration to doing that even if your hand is loaded with other good cards yeah and yeah, I know I struggled with that when I first started playing. It was so hard. Like, at first, I was trying to make use of my board every turn, and then I went to the straight, like, just play all the cards out of my hand. It really, I mean, it really depends on the deck. It really depends on what your opponent's doing, and <laughs> there's just a lot of nuance to it, and that's what's kind of amazing about this game is just trying to figure out when it's good to build the board, when it's good to actually use the board. So this isn't something that we're saying these words, and all of a sudden it's just going to click with you because, I mean, it's still... It's still something I work on when you're looking at that hand and you're like, I don't know which way I should go here. But uh, it becomes more apparent the more games you play and the more you're familiar with the deck that you're using while playing said games. All right. Well, let's jump to our next point, uh, which is not mulliganing aggressively. Uh, just to be clear, in the game of Key Forge, after you draw your opening hand, you do have the option of taking a mulligan. And that would mean shuffling your hand back into your deck and drawing a new hand of one fewer cards. And I think new players are hesitant to take that one loss of a card as often as they should be. And this is something that I wrote an entire article about, which I can plug here. Um, so if you're interested in reading really extensive thoughts on when is the right time to mulligan, you can check out my blog, which is chickenfriedgames.wordpress.com. But the short and sweet of it is the in, in the game of Keyforge, because you're always refilling your hand after the first turn, that one card loss is almost non-existent. It has a very, very low impact on the ultimate outcome of the game. And then along with that, the reason why you should mulligan is because the difference between a great hand, and when I talk about a great hand, that's having four or more cards of the same house already ready to go, and a good hand, which is maybe just three good cards for early in the game, is really, really large. And the reason for that is because a lot of times, if you have such early pressure, uh, your opponent just may never be able to get out from under that. And then less intuitively, I think, is the fact that if you already have five cards of the same house in your opening hand, that means there's a very good chance you'll be drawing into future hands of cards where you're getting four or more of the same house later in the game because your deck at that point is sort of loaded with the other two houses. Yep. So no, just kind of piggybacking on there. So yeah, pretty much any time you get a 2-2-2 two, two, two hand, like it, it's almost always an instant pitch. You just do not want 2-2-2. Two, two, two. Like that's just like the worst feeling in the world. Or 3-2-2 two, two on the play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anything where you're going to end up, your, you know, you're going to end your turn with 2-2. Two and two. Um, I mean, you just you kind of want to hope for more of, yeah, like, like what Jake's saying. You want to have a lot of cards from one house. Um, other mulligans that I find myself making are like late late game impact cards. So I mean cards like Arise, which would which allows you to bring back all of one house from your discard. You never really want to start with that in your opening hand. 
your opening hand would have to be pretty spicy to not throw that one back because a rise is not good until like turns three or four when there's actually some creatures in the discard and usually much later than that like turns five or six is when you really get value when you're about through your deck um bait and switch is another one that i don't mind throwing back for a mulligan because it's not good until you forged your first key and it's probably going to take you at least two to three turns to forge a key so that's two to three turns that you're either not calling shadows or you're just holding that card waiting for it to be good um what are some cards you you pitch immediately i think if you go back and just listen to that uh list of situational cards that dan referenced earlier on in the podcast those are all good examples uh, where it's dependent upon your opponent having some number of resources or you having some number of resources which could include cards in your discard pile the other thing i think about is on the flip side of that coin is sometimes decks have a certain card that they really want early and that might be a time you would keep an otherwise you know good to mediocre hand yeah, like a good example i played against a deck the other night that was actually pretty solid and it was a speed sigil deck where it had i think at least six or seven creatures that had like poison fight or like just enter the field so it was like um commander remiel who allows you to reap and then use a non-sanctum creature so he just had, I think it was like four shadows, poison creatures with speed sigil, and he hit it early both games. And yeah, it's, <laughs> the deck really, <laughs> really chugs along when you get that speed sigil out early, because all those creatures just allowed him to just control the board the entire game. Yeah, so I think just be aware of if your deck has any of those high impact cards, and not all of them do which is something I've sort of come to realize even since I wrote that article where I think I was made the made the argument that you should always figure out what your two or three best cards are to open the game. And a lot of times, if you don't have a card that's really your whole deck sort of revolves around like a speed sigil or a comm pod, which lets you ready a bunch of Mars creatures or something like that, um, then I would just defer back to really looking for those hands that just have a lot of one house because that just makes such a big impact on the whole course of the game no for sure and so like just last last point on this and then i'll move on like cards like the terror are a great turn one play um if you have a time traveler deck which one of our listeners does we just haven't gotten the contact yet maybe they will before this one releases so um time traveler is a really good turn one play Mother is a great turn one play just because Mother allows you to draw an extra card after you play player. It's just kind of a nice opening hand turn if you're going first or second, just drawing extra cards right away. One that we see a lot of times, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but fighting instead of reaping. Um, so a lot of us came from a magic background, and in the magic background, it was all about controlling the board, having board control, so that way you can just kind of do whatever you want to do. Well, this game, <laughs> you have to turn that thinking all around. Like, reaping is what you need to be doing. Like, if you're equal with your opponent and your opponent doesn't have any tech creatures that are going to hinder your plans, you're far better off reaping than you are actually fighting their board. Yeah, I think it's just, for new players, it's really switching the mindset. Uh, reaping is the aggressive play, and fighting is the conservative play. Um in most circumstances yeah for sure you know because it's amber that's going to win you the game i think a really good way 
uh, again, especially for new players to sort of wrap your head around how this works is, is to imagine uh, the scenario where you have two five power creatures, one on each side of the board. In that situation, the person who uses theirs to attack the other one, right? It's going to be the same result. Both creatures die, but the person that actually initiated the attack loses the interaction because they've given up the opportunity to use theirs to reap. A much better play, all, given all other things are equal, would be to reap with yours and then force your opponent to be the one to fight to get yours off the board. So if you don't know what's better to fight or reap, the official position of our podcast is to yeah, go when with in reaping. doubt, reap it out. Um, no, because you need 18 amber, minimum 18 amber to win the game. Fighting, unless you're a headhunter who gets one, if he fights and wins the fight. I mean, there's certain cards where fighting does equal the same result. And I mean, those are definitely the outliers. So you've got that Stealer of Souls. Um, that's a disc creature that also gains one when it fights and destroys a creature and also purges it, which is really nice. But um, aside from those few tech creatures that gain amber with fighting, most of the time you're just going to reap. Not to be, and then, and then again, this is not to be confused with our earlier point of killing the witch. You definitely want to fight <laughs> yeah. the witch. Not saying you should reap instead of fighting the witch. It's just, you know, if you're at a board situation where there those outside circumstances don't exist, right? Go back and think about the five power creature on one side versus the five power creature on the other side. You want to be the one reaping and making your opponent fight yeah, you. and growing your board so they have to react to your board to try to keep you from gaining as much amber the next turn. Anytime they're having to try to control your board, you're pulling ahead because they're not gaining amber a lot of times when they're doing that. Uh, the, next, the next mistake we see, not understanding your opponent's board and sometimes your own board. I've been making this mistake sadly too much lately. Um, my example would be, so a Titan mechanic is out on the board and you just kind of forget about it. It's sitting out there on the flank or maybe it wasn't sitting on the flank and something happened during the turn that it, you know, it uncovered it. So now keys, instead of costing six with the Titan mechanic on a flank, now they cost five for everybody. I've probably walked into this one or at least two or three times in the last few nights of playing and it's it's just a lack of awareness, just not making sure before I pass the turn back over what is actually there. Or like even before you declare your house, you should really take stock of what's on the board, what's on the board on your side, what's on the board on your opponent's side, and really make sure you have that understood before choosing your house. I say, so this is not a mistake having this more towards the bottom of our list for more advanced players. It may sound obvious to pay attention and know what's on the board, uh, but I think... I've actually found myself, as I become more familiar with the game, I think to myself, I know what these cards do, so I'm not taking time to read every single one, that I'm actually running into this issue more now than when I first learned the game. And whether that's because you know I'm just playing sloppy, or it's because I'm thinking more about higher-ordered uh, operations of, is this the pivot point? You know, Who's in control of this board? Uh, that I'll just miss super simple things. I think this is really good advice for everybody, which is just to slow down, read the cards, practice with your deck, make sure you're aware of what your cards do. I was actually streaming a game and my opponent had a 
Ilixi Dominator, the nine power taunt uh, Mars creature next to a hunting witch. And I looked at my board and couldn't figure out any way to kill the hunting witch. So I did something else. And somebody helpfully pointed out after my turn was over, why didn't you just attack the hunting witch with your Niffle Ape? <laughs> I, so I had to reread the card and see that Niffle Ape doesn't just ignore ev- Elusive, which I knew and was aware of, but it also ignores Taunt. You know, that's a mistake I never would have made if it was my first or second game. But because I've played so much and that text hasn't really been relevant uh, in those early games, it was something I just ignored in this really pivotal moment. Yeah, and I think the other thing that happens to me nowadays too is you're just thinking about the next play that you're going to make on your turn. Like so much that when your turn comes, you're like, all right, I've got it locked in. Like I've been considering this move the entire time. Then you click that house or you declare your house, you play the first couple cards, and then all of a sudden you look across and your opponent dropped an Ember Imp. And it's like, oh, now I just played my cards out of order and I can't play any more cards. So Ember Imp is a disc creature, two power, that limits you to two cards played. And just stuff like that happens. Or maybe they popped a life ward, which doesn't allow you to play creatures. Just something happens that where I was so in my head thinking about my next turn, I didn't realize that my turn was more limited than I thought it was going to be and just acted before actually fully contemplating the board state. Obvious plays, missing them. I mean, it happens in all games at the highest level of games. So it's just something to be aware of, whether it's your first game or your thousand. And if you can't read what the card says and you think you just know what it is by the picture, maybe read the card first. (laughs) 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 Uh, Iron Obelisk in uh, Banners of Battle got me confused the other night. I saw that. That was hilarious, actually. Many giggles were shared. (laughs) All right. I'll let you get us started on this next one because that's your uh, inspiration from last week. Yeah. So uh, monitoring your opponent's deck and discard. This one is a huge one. And this one's at the bottom for a reason. Like it is, it's really hard. I mean, there's 36 cards in your opponent's deck. You have two minutes before the game starts to look at their index card and kind of try to, you know, pull all the cards that you need to be watching out for the bait and switches the miasmas the interdimensional graphs the burn the stockpiles you're trying to keep all these straight in your head then on top of that you've been playing the game for like 25 30 minutes and still trying to hold on to that information while at the same time monitoring the cards they are playing what's in their discard this is probably like one of the higher level skills that you're going to learn for the game and this can really come into play in those like 2-2 games where if you don't remember they had a Miasma, well, Miasma's not a great, because Miasma just gets you like like the bait and switch or the uh, burn the stockpile or Drumble. I got right blown out by a Drumble the other night. Um, Drumble's a two-powered disc creature that if your opponent has seven or more amber, it captures all of it. So if you're in that 2-2 game and you can go to six and just win the game, you should do that. Because if you go to seven and they have a drumble and you played into drumble, you're definitely not winning the game that turn. <laughs> That's what I walked into. The example of cards that affect you if you're at seven or more amber are really key here to pay attention to. Uh, and so one thing that I try and do to varying levels of success is to identify how many cards they have that affect me at seven or over 
and then how many cards do the, do they have that just make me lose one or more amber that can really help you later on in the game because a lot of times you know you may realize that all they have left to affect your amber is an urchin that just says steal one amber in which case you want to go up to to above 6 but if there if you know that they have several cards that affect you if you're at 7 or higher and again it's not easy things to do but i think especially at the tournament level um, and, and when you're playing with really skillful players who are kicking your butt in the sanctimonious discard, <laughs> discord, uh, this is these are the kinds of plays and awareness that really make the difference. Even in the first parts of the game, too, if you're on like turn three or four and your opponent has played just two of their houses, you can pretty effectively guess by turn three or four that their hand is full of that third house. And like that's information that can be very helpful to you to know kind of like, if they haven't played shadows yet, then they've probably got a handful of shadows. So if you can think back to their index card, what were their big shadows plays? Like what's, if they have like a four or five card shadows hand, like what's the worst that's going to happen to you? And like that can help you set up your turn. Uh, if you have cards like control the week, you can also use a control the week at that point to really keep them off shadows. So if they've been playing logos the first four turns and you have taken care of their board and it was all action cards, if you control the weak them into logos, they probably don't have many logos and you just, you know, kind of killed one of their turns effectively. Yeah. And I mean, we're human, so we're not advising you to remember everything on your opponent's index card in the two minutes they have with it. So I think a couple of things that are helpful to think about is just, if can you identify the really high impact stealing cards or the really high impact cards that affect the board, like a board clear. It's really important to know whether they have uh, a gateway to disc that's going to say destroy all creatures or a coward's end, which often does the exact same thing because then you wanna be more aware about overextending the board where if they don't have access to that and you know that, uh, then you can really feel confident just dumping out a ton of creatures and, and asking if your opponent can deal with those. Yeah, and there's certain combos you kind of want to look out for too in an opponent's deck. Um, the lands combo, which is library access and the pent seed, that allows them to play the seed out one turn and then play library access, sacrifice seed, get library access back, and play library access a second time. So that way for every other Logos card they play that turn, they're drawing two. That's one to kind of look out for. The Battle Fleet, the Mars card that gives you an amber, allows them to reveal this many Mars cards, and then draw that many cards into Key Abduction, which allows them to forge a key at plus nine cost, minus however many cards they have in hand. Are just an example of two of the more powerful combos in the game, that if your opponent has those in your deck, you need to kind of formulate a little bit of a plan with how you're going to deal with that. So for the lands combo, you might want to have you know some artifact hate, if you have like a poltergeist or a nexus um, or remote access, poltergeist and remote access are probably, those cards are probably worth self-chaining yourself in that matchup just to make sure that that combo doesn't go off. Um, the Battlefleet key abduction, good luck. I don't <laughs> <laughs> a little bit harder. Maybe if you have a lot of Ember Imps or something like that so that you can reduce reduce the number of cards they can play in a turn. One final tip on this, I know we've kind of rambled on it, but if you're a new player, uh, you may not know that you are able to look at your opponent's discard pile. 
So that's public information. So as you're making these decisions, you don't have to remember every card that was played. Uh, you can politely ask your opponent if you can see the cards in their discard pile. So you you have that information available to you. You might as well use it to make those decisions. Yeah, and future-proofing ourselves a little bit here. It sounds like the next set will have cards that the discard order matters. So if you're sorting your discard at any time, get out of that habit now. And if you're looking at your opponent's discard, leave it in the same order that it's in. Apparently there are a couple cards in the new set that will play off the top of your discard. Well, let's go to our final point here, which is... In my opinion, the most difficult thing to do in the game, although that last one is a doozy as well, which is a mistake that people make is simply not understanding whether or not they're ahead or behind in the game. And this is an incredibly variable thing because you could be at two keys to your opponent's zero and essentially be locked out of the game because they're going to you know, do a one-turn kill next turn or, or in some other way, you know, you have been... They have you prevented from using cards. Um, or, you know, you could be in the other opposite end of that, where you have virtually no no chance of losing the game. And then, of course, everything along the spectrum between those two points. This is a really important skill to be able to identify because it's important information to leverage as you're making the decisions that we've alluded to throughout this whole explanation of uh, mistakes often made in Keyforge, you know, whether you should be fighting or reaping, whether you should be leveraging your board versus playing out cards in your hand. Yeah, and this is, yeah, this is, this is a really difficult part of the game too, especially when you're up like 2-1, you're trying to close out the game, but you're also trying to hedge against allowing your opponent to come back. Like there's just a lot of decision points kind of towards the end of the game where should I just keep pushing my board to put the pressure on? Or should I play more cards out to give myself more options on the next turns? And it's really hard to like give a hard and fast rules for these things. Um, it's it's something where just playing a deck over and over again will allow you to kind of understand how that deck should be piloted. I agree. It's really hard to give specific rules on this means you're ahead, this means you're behind. But uh, that's something you'll gain a feel for as you play through your deck. And I think we can give some sort of general ideas about this is the kind of action you want to take if you're ahead. This is the kind of action you want to take if you're behind. And I think it kind of comes down to a continuum between high risk, high reward versus low risk, low reward. So if you're significantly behind in the game, that is going to be a time when you know you want to play as though exactly the card that you need is on the top of your deck. Because if it's not, you know, you're probably going to lose the game anyway. So you may as well give yourself that chance of drawing into the perfect card as opposed to just playing what otherwise you would do if the game was even or you were ahead. Yep. No, I can see that. There's times too. Um, yeah, so like you have that library access, but you only have two cards in hand, but you know you have an effervescent principle, which would bring your opponent back underneath forging if you hit it. So you fire off that library access just to see you can find that card in the top two to put them back down and keep yourself in the games, you know, plays like that where odds aren't high, but you know, it's sometimes what you have to do to keep the game going. And then on the opposite end, if you're pretty far ahead, uh, it's usually a good idea um, to play sort of a low risk style to 
make sure any chance that your opponent could come back is sort of snuffed out. If you got that 2-1 advantage and you're trying to close that game out, then you just want to get yourself into check as quick as possible. I mean, you don't want to allow your opponent to forge keys. Like, if you have ways to prevent that, you definitely want to do that. But if they're not close to forging a key, like just reaping or whatever play from your hand that gains you the most amber is kind of what you want to do at that point because, yeah, you're trying to close the game out. You just This, this game can be swingy. They can draw the bait and switch or they can draw the relentless whispers which allows them to steal one gain one so it's you know those kinds of big plays can all of a sudden bring somebody right back into a game from that 2-1 disadvantage uh so, yeah so th this is why it's so tough because like i kind of disagree in some ways um i mean i do agree you want to always put yourself in check if you can to force your opponent to have answers at the same time if they do have those higher impact cards out there uh like a mother that's going to help them to see extra cards to increase their chances of coming back in the game uh or certainly a hunting witch or witch of the wild something like that then i would definitely sacrifice a reap to attack that those creatures yeah yeah no i can agree with that i mean <laughs> The great thing about this game is it's a unique deck game, so you're never really going to run into too many, <laughs> too many similar board states. So it's just try it one way one time, try it the next way the next time, and just find out <laughs> results may vary, which is super fun about this game. Yeah, and I mean, and that's the other thing too is like whether you're ahead in the game or behind in the game can switch so quickly. So being able to constantly reevaluate and understand is huge. I guess like the last thing I'll just throw in at the very end. So if you're going to an event and it's a major event or a chain bound, it's always good to go through the FAQ. They don't update the FAQ very often, but there are some interesting situations. And even though you might not have any decks that have the particular situations called out in them, um, they're good to be aware of in case it does come up in a game because not knowing is opening yourself up to the possibility of bad things happening. <laughs> Um, so check out the FAQ. I think we might start a new segment if we can start squeezing it in if our main topics get a little bit shorter as we kind of get through some of these meaty main topics we've been covering. We might throw one in called uh, Clear Mind where we might just go through some a couple of the FAQs every week and just kind of explain them. If you think that's a good idea, if that'd be helpful to you, please let us know. You can comment on this podcast wherever you find it or just let us know in the sanctimonious discord yeah or twitter or any of those or twitter let's move to our final uh, segment here huh one stood against many oh sam <laughs> all right it's my turn to speak one stood against many. I want to talk about the Crucible Online. Uh, there's a lot of people out there. They're like, oh, I don't want to play online because um, it's just I, I prefer playing cards. Well, I understand that, but I'm a full-time worker. I have a daughter, I have a son on the way. Like the Crucible Online is the reason this podcast even exists because without the Crucible Online, I wouldn't get to play this game as much as I do, and I would probably be a very casual player with like five or six decks instead of the number of decks that I won't say in a public place because it's embarrassing. But um, yeah, the Crucible Online is an online web browser client that allows you to play the game, to load your decks in, 
and play against either random people or if you join the sanctimonious discord a lot of plugs were at this this show we just want to grow that discord man it's been great uh yeah you can find a, an opponent to play against you can play against your friends like you don't have to get together if, if you're a father like me or you just don't have regular time to make it out to the local game store to play in events like this is a way to actually play games and you know, get experience, get better at the game, try out your new decks before you take them to a chain bound. If you do get to go to chain bounds, it gives you a chance to you know get those reps in beforehand, so you're more familiar, more successful when you go. Um, so yeah, um, it's at thecrucible.online is the website. If you just search, if you Google search Crucible Keyforge, you'll also find it. And this is being this is being mostly handled by one person. He's in a couple of the Keyforge discords as Jadriel, J-A-D-R-I-E-L. Um, he does have a PayPal set up because he's not charging anything. This is completely free to play. There's nothing that you need to do other than loading in your decks. And if you go into the About section under Help on the site, he does have a link to a PayPal account to help him with the uh, server hosting costs and just other generic costs that he's putting out, pulling out of his own pocket to make this service available to us. Yeah, it's such a great service. If you want to play Keyforge conveniently, it works perfectly to do that. You know, I've played in a competitive league, mostly run through the Crucible, played tons and tons of casual games, competitive games, um, and it's just a great product. So I would encourage you, uh, if you haven't used, if you've never played online, to at least check it out and give it a chance. And if you played a ton, maybe think about throwing uh jadriel a couple of dollars just to tip his hard work that really adds a lot of value i mean a tremendous amount of value to the community uh and just enjoyment to our lives uh with a special nudge to the knowledge that uh the second set is coming out soon and i personally sure would love to see those cards coming up to play with online i mean he's he's got it in here like a sentence after he gives his paypal just to make things clear i'm not doing this for any personal gain whatsoever any money raised via this link will be used towards paying the hosting fees for the server and related services such as error tracking all money in this account will only go towards these expenses so i mean he's not going out and buying keyforge decks which power to you brother um, <laughs> 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 but uh no it, it, I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm no coder. I, I've flunked out of coding in college, so I can't even imagine the amount of hours he's put into this so that we can all sit here and jam games over and over again. And until FFG um, creates their own, if they ever do, which fingers crossed they will. We would love that. Yeah, we would love really, that. Really, really, Please. really love that. Um, but until then, like, this is the service we have available. Tabletop Simulator also has a mod that you can get to play it on there. I haven't used it before. I hear it's a little bit more manual to play and takes a little bit longer to play. And I enjoy kind of the, uh, the, the speed that you can play a game on the crucible and just to be, I mean, throw out the disclaimers. There are a few cards that don't work as intended on the crucible. Um, things like one stood against many doesn't quite trigger correctly. And there's just a couple other ones that are just kind of known issues. What? I know. That triggers me in, in this segment of all things doesn't work um because yeah if there's no creatures to fight the ready doesn't happen correctly so that uh that means that you should be playing with people you know so that you can go to manual mode and they'll let you put it in a manual mode and make it work the correct way but yeah it's a really great service um that's just out there for free that's where i get the majority of my games on because i don't get that much of a chance to get out during normal normal people human hours 
So I have to play, you know, dad hours from like 9.30 at night to 11. But yeah, check it out. Crucible Online. Thank you, Jadriel. Thanks, Jadriel. All right. Okay, well, that wraps up this week's episode of Sanctimonious. As always, we're going to leave you with our personal plugs for our digital locations. What the heck does that even mean? Where we set up our digital castles around yeah. our round tables. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Dan is someone, D-A-N-I-S-S-O-M-E-1. Um, you can find the show Twitter at Sanctimonious. That's Sanctum, like the house, O-N-I-U-S. And then my last plug I'll do is my Twitch channel. I do Twitch stream occasionally as dad, as dad life allows. Uh, Dan is someone as well. Again, D-A-N-I-S-S-O-M-E and the number one. Jake, where can they find your digital castle? You can find my digital castle on Twitter at Jake Freed. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. I'm on Twitch uh, under the same name. And this is new. Uh, we just set up a sanctimonious email. Uh, so that's sanctimonious at gmail.com. So if you send us any feedback or review of the show, uh, I promise we'll read it out on the next show. Uh, if you're new to Keyforge, just let us know how you're finding it. If you're interested, I might even send a lucky listener a deck, you know, just casual, just to help share the love of the game. So if you're new, and interested in just getting a fun deck to play with some buddies send us an email let us know why yeah it's got to be it's got to be a good story it's got to be some sanctum puns in there yeah i think somebody gave us a couple of decks and i i certainly have a few that aren't seeing much play at the moment so really these are nothing competitive uh just a way to give back to the community and hopefully spread the game yep definitely all right well that's it for this week's sanctimonious dan why don't you close us out Archons of the Crucible. The day of the Age of Ascension is about to be upon us. Go forth with the call of the Archons and forge those keys. Normal people, human hours. What?